Welcome to The Future Strategist. And my guest again today is uh, Malcolm Collins. We've had him on had him on once before. Hi, Malcolm. How are you doing? Hello. It is wonderful to be joining you again today. Awesome. Malcolm, do you want to uh, remind our listeners and viewers a bit about yourself? Yeah, former neuroscientist, specialized in like human evolution and brain computer interface stuff, uh, went on to become a venture capitalist, then went on to become like a general intellectual. I've written a number of books under the Pragmatist Guide series that have been bestsellers. One actually topped the Wall Street Journal last year for nonfiction list. Um, and I have a podcast now that we release daily episodes on that's called Base Camp, where we uh, mostly discuss sex, politics, and religion, just anything that's offensive. Um, and uh, I... Um, I, I'm mostly known publicly for running the pronatalist movement, and I'm the source of the elite couple breeding to save mankind meme. Um, if, if if people have heard that in the in the public consciousness, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, and you've gotten a lot of publicity, at least on my corner of Twitter, for writing about how elite people should have more kids. <laughs> Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I people, you know, the last time I was on your podcast, I was it was a while ago and I was warning about fertility collapse in the developing world. Um, and since then, the numbers in the developing world have basically ended up shocking everyone. So there's a great piece this year. If your audience is interesting, it's in America's Quarterly. This is a newspaper that covers Latin America specifically. So this is not like a politically right leaning or left leaning newspaper. Um, and it's on the unexpected Latin American fertility crash. And then it's titled something like and no one knows why. Exactly. Um, and what it showed is that the UN in 2019, they predicted that Latin America would uh, stabilize in the second half of this century at around 1.75 and it would stop falling after that. And, and I always say, because I talk with demographers, I talk with newspapers about this and they go, everybody says it's going to stop falling. And I'm like, they're wrong. Like, there's no reason it would stop falling if you're looking at the leading indicators. So they predicted this. The UN predicted this in 2019. Right now, every single one of the countries, except for one, Mexico, in their survey data has already fallen below that five years after they made the prediction that this is the number it would stabilize at at the second half of this century. In fact, within Latin America, at least according to the demographers that this paper was interviewing, and they had a lot of quite famous demographers, uh, because just, you know, if you like a Google demography maps, countries aren't really updated uh, uh, in the developing world. So you need to go directly to the demographers to see the data. But they showed that a number of Latin American countries have already fallen below the 1.3 fertility number. Specifically, it was Cuba, Jamaica, Costa Rica, Chile, and Uruguay. So for people who don't know, 1.3, that means they're basically halving their populations every generation and are well below where we are in the United States. And so now it's looking like Latin America is going to fall below the U.S. infertility rate in the near future, which I don't think anyone saw coming. Whoa. So that means um, that immigration from Latin America saving the U.S. from our fertility crisis, that's probably not going to happen. Oh God, no, no, not at all. Um, and 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 it's it's really interesting. So as to why this is happening, um, my guess would be, and we've talked about this before, is Catholic majority countries do really bad in terms of fertility crashes. Um, they they like the different cultures react to fertility crashes differently. And in Catholic majority countries in Europe have a fertility rate of only one point three already on average. Um, so uh, I I think it's just that this religious cultural group is just really bad at fighting. Um, whatever is causing fertility collapses. Um, but we can pontificate on this for some other day, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So today we talked about uh, discussing um, Robin Hanson's grabby alien thesis. Yeah. So I want to talk about his grabby alien theory. Um, and it, it has a profound effect on AI safety. 
Um, I agree. It definitely should inform our predictions about what so, we think would happen. Yeah. So let's talk about this because I, because I don't think people realize the implications of this. First, let's go over what the grabby aliens yeah. model is. Um, and this is Robin Hanson actually came up with this. He was on your show recently. Um, and, and, and we came up with a model called the inverse grabby aliens model that he doesn't like because of a, a major misassumption that I think he has, but we can talk about what this misassumption is. Um, so the grabby aliens model, what it does is it says, uh, actually, do, do you want to explain it or do you want me to explain it? Yeah, I mean, we can, I'll, I'll give an explanation you can add to it. So yeah. basically we start with the Fermi paradox, which is, you know, where are they? It seems that there should have been plenty of time for life on other planets to make itself visible. There's a lot of planets in their galaxy, a lot of galaxies in the universe. Mm -hmm. Our sun is not, you know, particularly old. We don't seem to be unusual. And yeah, the universe is big. They might not, you know, you'd think they might not have time to get here, but it's older than it is big. If you think of a mm -hmm. civilization a million years older than ours, which is nothing compared to how long life's been on earth, it should be able to have made itself seen throughout the whole galaxy. I mean, you send yeah. out, you know, you, you disassemble a large asteroid, you send probes everywhere. And, you know, it, there's certainly been enough time for nearby galaxies to have sent probes to Earth. It's weird. And then it gets weirder when you start thinking about thermodynamics. If our understanding of physics is right, there's a limited amount of free energy in the universe. And when it's gone, we all die. So when black holes merge, they're wasting all this free energy. You'd think like the first thing an advanced alien race would do is not let black holes merge, not let all this free energy be wasted, build Dyson spheres around, around stars to capture the energy. They're not doing that. I So that's, that's an enormous paradox. And Hansen came up with the idea that, well, maybe what's happening is as soon as a race gets advanced enough, and you know, if it... You know, some, some some advanced races will seek to grab all the resources they can. And that would mean that the only civilizations like ours that can exist will exist towards the beginning of the universe. And this is implications for the probability of life arising. So I yeah. think it's basically oh, – go on. Yeah, so I'll, I'll add to this a little bit. So basically the grabby alien theory assumes that the reason we haven't seen aliens yet – is just because there's some sort of filter preventing a species from becoming what he calls a grabby alien. All right. Mm -hmm. So a grabby alien versus like a quiet alien is one that like you're going to notice because it is doing the type of behavior that you're talking about. It's going out there, disassembling planets and using all of the matter in that planet to then spread further, right? Like it's a very specific kind of alien. Um, yeah. So he's saying, why aren't we seeing these aliens? Like even if there's other types of aliens in the universe that are like stealthy and super smart, you know, there should be a certain number of grabby alien type aliens. Um, unless there was something else suppressing them, but we can get to this later. This isn't really important for the equation. He's saying, well, let's just presume that there isn't actually anything fundamentally in the universe preventing grabby aliens from coming to exist. The only thing that's preventing them from coming to exist is some filter in between a planet being potentially habitable and that planet producing a grabby alien. And so uh, that's, that's all he's assuming, right? Like, and so then he's saying, okay, if we haven't seen one yet, you can use the fact that we haven't seen one yet to calculate the probability, like, like how low the probability would need to be that a planet becomes a grabby alien producer. 
mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, from that fact. Um, and what he finds out is if that's the only reason we haven't seen one yet, we can then actually calculate about how long it will be till we see one and about how rare they are. Specifically, it means that you get a grabby alien in about one in every million galaxies. That's how rare they would have to be uh, in his in his equation. Now, this equation becomes really, really important in the case of AI safety. And I think it actually proves, like, like proves to me, definitively proves we are not about to create a paperclip maximizer. And somebody might go, how does it prove that? Yeah, so, that's not have, at all obvious to me. And okay, I, so I have to walk this back. Paperclip maximizer. So go on, eager to hear. Yeah. So the, the, the first thing you have to realize is what a, a, a paperclip maximizer is like the very definition of a grabby alien. It is the most grabby of all grabby aliens. If there was a paperclip maximizer out there in the universe, we would see it. Like all variations of paperclip maximizers. Now, now that's not necessarily true. If it were traveling at the speed of, if it was expanding at the speed of light, we wouldn't see it because we would be dead, right? It, 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 as soon as you see it, you die. Oh, no, no, but it would have the exact same effects on um, uh, uh, the, the grabby alien calculation. Yeah, it would because enhancing the surprising thing is not that we don't see grabby aliens, but that we exist. Why hasn't... Yes. Why didn't you grab the alien 100 million years ago consume Earth? So when I say see it, I don't necessarily mean see it in the stars. I mean, see it in, in terms of we were already dead or see it in the stars. Okay, yeah. It, why hasn't it influenced our galaxy in a way that we either see it as traveling half the speed of light and we see something weird in a part of the universe or we just don't exist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so then you, you can do something really odd with the grabby aliens equation, right? Which is to say... If we take the presumption that we are about to create, like next 10 to 100 years, we are literally about to create a grabby alien, um, that allows us to do something really interesting, which means we have a piece of information that the grabby aliens equation assumes we don't have. We can estimate the, um, the, the severity of the great filters a species has to go through before it becomes a grabby alien. So if we set basically, okay, using humanity is like an, sorry, it keeps changing what microphone is. Um, we, are, we are using humanity as like a model species, right? Um, we can then go through within human history from ambiogenesis, you know, the, the, the first evolution of life from non-life to, and we, we create that as a filter. Like I'm just estimating the filters we've already passed through. So you can multiply that probability by the probability of um, uh, uh, like multicellularity forming, by the probability of, uh, you know, intelligent life forming, with the probability that intelligent life kills itself. And we know most of the ways that intelligent life can kill itself with technology before it becomes a grabby alien now, because apparently we're about to become a grabby alien. So like, what's the probability we made it through like nuclear wars, right? Even if you apply very unoptimistic probabilities to each of the thresholds that we have gone through um, as a species right now, the equation, then basically you can try to set the equation to true to find out the probability that we are actually about to create a grabby alien. Um, and the answer becomes one in a million, basically. 
Um, okay, I, I'll be honest. I don't. I don't see that right now. But go on. <laughs> wait, wait. So does this? What part of of the logic that I'm going through doesn't make sense? I, um. So first part is we don't know the probability of like the first replicators forming, right? We, there's a lot of uncertainty over that step. And that okay, that's the reason why Robin Hansen disagrees with it. But let's assume that we do. I'll get to embryogenesis in just a second. Let's okay. assume we have a range of probabilities for the first replicators forming. Okay, so we have a, okay, so I'll agree. So yes, if you were to look back and say, hey, look, it wasn't that unlikely that we, you know, you'd expect once per galaxy, given the history of the universe, life like us would arise. Then yes. I would agree. And I would say it is unlikely we become gravy aliens because we would have seen it somewhere else. So I will, yes. I will agree with that. And you can use this. So let's get to the ambiogenesis part because this is actually important. And I've noticed uh, this is actually, we did a podcast episode on this on our podcast recently that goes really deep into ambiogenesis uh, or the formation of first life on our planet. And uh, Robin Hansen has the same complaint with the theory, which he thinks ambiogenesis is incredibly unlikely, um, the, the first life forming. And he mentioned something really funny when I had him on our podcast to talk about this issue. It's actually an episode that hasn't gone live yet. Um, we're sitting on, I want to make some edits, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Um, <clears throat> where he says... It's really odd that whenever I talk to somebody who's a specialist in some form of ambiogenesis, they always seem to think it's really likely. Um, and yet I am certain it's unlikely. And I'm like, why do you have this certainty when all of the experts have a certainty in the opposite direction? And a really interesting thing about ambiogenesis research is people have this, if, 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 so first I need to talk about like what, there's a problem with our education system where it just doesn't talk about ambiogenesis. A lot of people just don't have a lot of knowledge um, about the science of ambiogenesis, even though it's a very well-studied field. Um, and so, and the, and the reason is, like the reason we don't talk about it in college or high school that much, or in general education that much, is because it's a very offensive topic to religious people. And so it's just one of those topics that like basically nobody really goes into that deep. So the general public knowledge, even among educated people on the topic is, is not that great. Um, but uh, the, the, and I, and I, when I was talking with my wife, like she basically had never even heard of it in, in, in her entire education. And she has a graduate degree from Cambridge. Like, like the details of the ambiogenesis. But one of the things that makes me think, like just as an outsider, like if I'm looking at the field of ambiogenesis, a really odd thing about the field of ambiogenesis is there are a bunch of different hypotheses about how the first replicator started. Um, and uh, for you to get life, all you, well, we'll get to this in a second. Um, but if you look at the different hypotheses, uh, or actually I should probably clear this up. For you to get life, all you really need is anything that is self-replicating um, and that changes to some extent while it's self-replicating, that doesn't self-replicate with perfect uh, clarity. Um, and, 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 and people might be like, wow, that sounds remarkably easy to get life. And it's like, well, you've got the problem here, which is that if you have the energy in an environment for self-replication, you're typically missing one of two things. Either the environment has so much energy that you can't get a stable self-replicator existing within the environment. Um, so like, even if you had, a, uh, well, we'll get into the various ways that ambiogenesis could happen, but like, suppose you had like a, a, a beach or something like that, right? Well, there you actually have a lot of the ingredients you need. You've got the waves coming in and out, which creates a sort of rhythmic source of energy for self-replication. Um, but, uh, you, um, 
might have a tsunami once every hundred years or something like that. Well, then it becomes useless unless the life can form fairly, like these self-replicating patterns can become fairly complex within a hundred years, or at least complex enough to protect themselves from these sorts of catastrophic events. Um, and so you might need an even more stable environment, uh, like a deep sea vent. This is where why deep sea event vents, like a lot of people vaguely know, people think life might've evolved around deep sea vents. This yeah. is why people think that, because now you don't have as much radiation hitting those environments you don't have as much like random stuff it's a very stable environment with a stable energy source um but uh the people who study the different ways life could evolve uh typically they are experts in a, in a specific hypothesis like they think it evolved because of lipid bilayers self-replicating this is like one hypothesis or they'll think it evolved because of like the citric acid cycle um, this is this is one hypothesis. Or they'll think it evolved because of RNA hypothesis. Uh, this is another uh, uh, hypothesis that, that you see out there. What's really interesting is that whatever somebody's uh, field of expertise is, they will assume, if they are an expert in embryogenesis, that their way of life coming to exist, their field of expertise, is by far the most likely way for life to come to exist. Now, what this tells me as an outsider is something really interesting. Like, this is an important piece of information. It, it tells me that the, the sources, like, the more knowledge you have on how life could come to exist from a specific pathway, like, the more of an expert you are, the more likely you think it is that life came to exist from that pathway. It means that people with more knowledge on these individual pathways than me all think that their pathway was the most likely, which instead to me says, actually, there's probably like 50 different ways you could have gotten, like even if I cross out like 10 of these ways that ambiogenesis could have happened, um, all of these other ways it could have happened. And something that's really important when you're studying ambiogenesis that a lot of people miss is they think that early life needed to look something like life today. And it really didn't. I actually think the far, by far the most likely, like my two ambiogenesis pathways, I think are by far the most likely for, for where ambiogenesis actually happened. Because now what we're seeing in, in, in recent research, it looks like life evolved, like start started a lot earlier than we thought it did. Um, is the clay hypothesis um, or the citric acid cycle hypothesis. Um, are you familiar with either of these hypotheses or? A, a tiny bit. A tiny bit. Okay, so I can go into this a little bit. So the citric acid cycle hypothesis, if you want to like Google what this is, it is very, very simple molecules, much more simple than something like RNA. Um, it's, it's, it's it, it, like they, when you see it on the screen, you're like, wow, this is a very simple molecule, but this molecule, this very simple molecule self-replicates and it, and it doesn't only self-replicate it, it self-replicates in a way that is, uh, similar to sort of how metabolic processes work in cells. So it would have been a very natural starting point for a cell. Um, the uh, clay hypothesis is actually even different from that. It's like, well, what created these stable environments uh, where early life could have evolved? Well, it was the spaces between clay. So in clay, you might have a layer where like one piece of clay is cleaving on another piece. Well, this creates sort of geometric patterns um, in where the two clays meet each other. And so the very first life could have actually been sort of self-replicating geo... Uh, geometric patterns in a two-dimensional space on clay lattices. Um, so very, very different from what life ended up becoming. 
But all you need is these self-replicating patterns in a stable enough environment and eventually you get life. Now, this gets really interesting because a lot of people, they're like, well, what about like the Yuri Miller experiment and stuff like that? So people who aren't familiar, I didn't know this would become an ABI biogenesis episode, but it's good, it's good to go into. So Yuri Miller experiment, good to know about if you, if you don't know a lot about embryogenesis. He um, put a, uh, he tried to like recreate sort of broadly what we know, like the early ocean was like in terms of the chemicals that was in it. And then he found that it generated uh, some of what we think of as organic chemicals. Uh, i.e. the chemicals that you often find in life. Um, and then sort of what he takes away from that is, well, maybe these chemicals could have come together to become life as, as we understand it, just in the right. I actually don't think that that's a good takeaway from his experiment. And his experiment has some replicability problems, but it's definitely true that you get some level of organic chemicals in this early soup. What I think he's actually finding there is if you're asking why did life choose these chemicals to be what we now know of as organic chemicals, it's because these are the chemicals that were around in the early oceans. And they were around to be grabbed as complex starting blocks by these early self-replicating patterns. So when I look at how easy it is for these stable self-replicating patterns to come to exist in this early environment, um, I mean, and you can look at like Spiegelman's monster, like a lot of people who, okay, so I should... Do you want me to keep going on ambiogenesis or am I just ranting at this point? Uh, no, I mean, it, it, it's fine, but let's, I mean, it's hard for me to the critique that because my bio background is weak. So what if we proceed, like, if I'll accept what you're saying that ambiogenesis is far more likely to have occurred. It's likely enough to have occurred that it makes the Fermi paradox much, much worse. Well, worse and better because there's another interesting thing here where I don't think I actually think that, that uh, species do evolve all the time on planets. I think that the answer to the Fermi paradox makes a, uh, a paperclip maximizing AI not scary, but it also is incredibly, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, it, it, it makes it not scary, but it also makes it um, uh, not a threat. Okay? So there's so that, a few- Let me just- Say before I hear your argument, why that a priori that strikes me is unlikely. Again, you might okay. before I listen to your argument that you know evolution is going to favor life that wants to spread out, and so you would think on a, a majority, or at least like one percent of you know of of species where they're capable of becoming grabbialiums, they'll want to be. And of course, if you look at you know Earth history, different you know you can imagine the Mongols taking over; they're certainly going to spread out. So it would seem, given right evolution that is going to be the driving force, that a large percent of species capable of becoming grabby aliens will. But what's your argument against that? So I think you're right about that. Um, so I, I wanted to go over some of the simpler rebuttals first before I go to this rebuttal because it's the, the okay, correct sure, rebuttal. Sure. It's the correct rebuttal, but I want to get the bad rebuttals out of the way first. Okay, um, good idea. Yeah. It, it could be that we're living in a dark forest universe. For people familiar with the dark forest hypothesis, it means there actually are aliens out there. Uh, they're sort of all over the place. And the reason you don't see grabby aliens is because they get killed really quickly. Like they're a threat to other aliens 
or they are, um, you know, the, the aliens just kill any life that's different from them that looks like it may be arising and they're sort of monitoring the whole universe. It's like, fine, okay, but if we're in a dark forest universe, creating a paperclip maximizer doesn't really matter anyway because the alien's about to kill us anyway, you know? Um, and, and this is true for a lot of these potential answers, but to your answer, it gets really interesting, which I think is the most likely potential answer. Um, so there's two potential answers to this, which, which basically fulfill like my entire answer to the, to this question. Uh, the first one, um, is that there is something about physics we don't understand yet that makes constant expansion look very different from constant expansion outwards. Like we would think a grabby alien doing. So if I'm going to word this a bit differently, it could be humanity gets on a ship. We, we go out there, you know, it turns out that like speed of light is the actual speed that you can travel in the universe. You know, 200 years later, we arrive at some other planet and we meet aliens and they just look at us perplexed. They're like, how could a species as dumb as you have space travel? And we're like, what do you mean as dumb as us? They're like, the energy of space travel is pointless. It is so much easier to just travel between dimensions to your own planet. And your own planet is already habitable to you. What are you doing expanding into space? It might be that it is trivially easy to basically do something like hop between dimensions. Um, if that's true, or, or not trivially, but easier on a cost per energy level than space travel. If that turns out to be true, then there is no reason to expand outwards. Expansion is about expanding outwards through multi-dimensions. But that one, uh, there's- oh. Well, that know, one is- go, Push back on that. That one seems weird because of exponential growth. It seems like, you know, in a thousand years, we, we should be able to create a little tiny probe that goes to Mercury, you know, disassembles it, sends something to, you know, a billion galaxies and does, you know, and, and keeps replicating and keeps growing. So yes, it might well be there's another dimension we can get energy from, but we could also expand here. And it- Right, it so what I'm saying is expanding here off. is- is energy wise, it turns out if this model is true, now this isn't the only potential physics model, but if this model is true, it turns out that expanding here energy wise is just astronomically more costly than expanding interdimensionally. So by that, what I mean is yes, it might make sense. Like, like we could go out and turn Venus into like a swarm of nanites or something like that, that then go yeah. out and, and, and explore the galaxy. But it could turn out that energy-wise, like that's the core unit of accounting of the universe. It could turn out that that's like a million or a billion times more costly energy-wise than expanding to different Earths. Um, so even if that's true, I might have, we might have preferences to how other life forms in the universe are living. We might say it's easier to expand, but you know, we suffered a lot. You know, imagine what human civilization becomes nice. We're like, you know, there's us, you know, from a million years ago, they're suffering. Why don't we spend a tiny, I mean, it's going to be way under 1% of our daily energy budget and, you know, free the universe of pain or, you know, we have religious reasons or we're afraid there might be some psychopath aliens and we have to protect so I ourselves. I think that might be happening, but we're going to get to this in a second. So I, okay, I do okay. intuitively agree with you, okay. uh, but, it, but then there's the second model which it turns out that energy is actually um, the, 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 the next stage of ev like, like technological evolution. Um, it turns out that energy is dramatically more easy to get than we think it's 
easy to get. Like, i.e., next stage of technological evolution as PC goes through past our stage, energy becomes infinite and trivial. Um, like, you don't need Dyson spheres. Something about subspace, something about the way the laws of physics work means that you can draw an infinite source of energy from sort of the background of the universe. Okay, yeah, and that's certainly applied. There's some glitch in quantum mechanics where you do something, you rub plates close together in a certain way and, you know, near gravity in some way. And yeah, just, you get more and more energy. Okay, yeah, so that's, yeah, so, that's a possibility. So if this is true, um, then then the, the way that a grabby alien works is going to look very different because it's not expanding out like to other planets and stuff like that. It's more like a almost ever expanding star system. Um, but even then, as soon as you gain access to infinite energy, the goal of continued expansion becomes kind of pointless because you can expand into the micro instead of having to expand outwards. Um, you, you can expand into infinite AI generated universes and stuff like that. There's no need to expand outwards in the same way we're doing it now, except like, like the only advantage in space travel, if it turns out that infinite energy is something that you can get, is either protection, i.e. you're expanding outwards to prevent somebody else from expanding outwards and getting you, or uh, novelty. Something about other species is like novel and interesting to, to you and, and provides like a form of entertainment that you um, cannot get from your own local system. Um, because because in this universe, when I'm talking about like an infinite energy universe, uh, that means that travel is probably infinitely easy as well. These aliens, if they have this sort of power, almost certainly can travel faster than the speed of life and can essentially appear anywhere in the galaxy they want, whenever they want. But now most of the galaxy is pretty boring to them. It's it's the, the other planets don't have a purpose to them because they're they're mostly lifeless. The only planets that would have any value to a species like this are planets like ours, where a civilization is forming. Um, but if, if especially a number of alien species like this existed, uh, the highest crime you could likely commit in this universe is meddling with a species uh, in, in a way that could destroy that species or, or overly interact with that species and pollute what makes them unique. Because now it is the uniqueness of different alien cultures that don't have this technology yet, which is the core thing of value in what otherwise is a mostly dead universe. Now, this would explain a lot of stuff about our species, right? We are basically in a zoo. Aliens actually are interacting with us all the time. And the reason we don't see grabby aliens out there is because these grabby aliens do sometimes come to exist, but they are technologically infinitely weaker than the infinite energy aliens. And so the infinite energy aliens just go out and delete the grabby aliens. And meanwhile, are fascinated by species like humanity. And so we're basically living in a zoo and now you have explanations for alien sightings and everything like that, but also why they are not interacting with us in a way that that overly impacts our culture, i.e. like showing up on giant spaceships. Because if you did that, now you've made us more like them, which dilutes our uniqueness, which is the core source of value in humanity to this type of alien. Okay, that I could see that. So basically, if we assume there's some powers that be have a preference to keeping the universe in its natural state, the way human environmentalists often want to do with woodlands. Yeah. And they, they impose some limits on your ability to do that. And that would explain, again, our alien sightings. And some of them do seem credible combined with 
the universe looking natural to us. Yeah. And they've done something probably with their own star systems to make sure it's not giving off radiation in a way that makes it obvious. Yeah, because if it did, then we might drift more towards them or we might go out and seek them and become less interesting faster. Um, because as soon as aliens can start appearing at any other planet, uh, basically at light speed, I imagine that you get something like a single culture sort of invading these different lands and they become less unique. So when we become an alien like them, like we actually become less interesting and less important to them when we join the interstellar community, because when we join that, we become less unique and we become sort of this giant monoculture. Now, a counter-argument to that one is to say we shouldn't model an alien species as one agent if it's ex if it exists over a large area and the speed of light is the limit. You know, the, you'll have different agents doing different things, then they'll they'll probably be value drift. Yeah, so I, my guess, and, and obviously people can push back, but my guess is that if it turns out that we're in an infinite energy universe, the speed of light is not an actual limit. Um, when you have infinite energy, you can put to the speed of light problem. It becomes much less of a problem. Um, you, and so you mean my, literally infinity or do you mean really big and you're using infinity as an approximation? Um, what? Sorry. When you say infinite energy, do you literally mean infinite energy or do you mean like just astronomically big compared to what we have now? Because infinite things get weird mathematically whenever you have That's a real. That's why I mean, I, I mean, I mean, so I, the way I think infinite energy would work, just so people are aware of like, like the model, I'm not just like pull, pulling this out of like complete speculative physics. Um, so this came when I was thinking about, okay, if aliens aren't expanding outwards into the universe, where might they be expanding? So they could be expanding into alternate Earths, right? Like that's one way to think of it. But I actually think the more, far more likely area they're expanding with our current understanding of physics is that they're creating pocket universes. Um, when we look at our universe today, right, um, it, 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 it looks like it's running out of energy. Like you talk about like black holes and stuff like that. Yeah. But we also know hypothetically within our universe today, it's possible to essentially create a pocket dimension and pinch it off from the main dimension. Um, I think that what these these aliens are dealing with is is pocket dimensions um, that uh, uh, create when you can create other universes, uh, basically whenever you want to draw power from um, that might be short of actual infinity, but it is much closer. It's like it's like they have the power. All of the power we have in our entire universe is accessible to them. Um, Multiplicitous. Oh, there's no it's upper like a, their their energy use that has no upper bound. So yeah, it's has probably no, always going to be finite, but they could always keep creating new universes, and the rate at which they could create them might increase exponentially because the new universes could create. And this, of course, means yeah. with almost certainty we're in one of these universes that an alien created because there's so many more of those than there is the original universe. Well, my guess would be that if the universes are created to be reactors. Um, they're probably structured different than the universe prime. Um, so I don't think that. I think that the reactor universes uh, basically have all of the power, all of the free energy of our universe, but they're much more structured and ordered and thus life can't come to exist within them. Um, but if they want novelty, why not create more of it? Create, hey, let's, we can easily create new universes. Let's create a whole bunch of universes where life can arise and it will be our entertainment. Yeah, they might, I mean, they might be doing that. And they're no, like, no, I, I, I also think that there's a different answer to this uh, whole question, um, which is uh, uh, utility convergence. Um, but this also aligns with my previous answer, 
which is to say that all entities above a certain level of intelligence arrive at something. And this is something that I actually believe in. We've done a lot of theories of this around why I, I think that uh, AI uh, uh, paperclip maximizers are pretty unlikely, um, is that once an entity reaches a certain level of intelligence, it converges on, uh, and, and intelligence can basically mean like complexity of its thoughts. It arrives at a convergent utility function. Um, so uh, this requires some explanation as, as to how this would work. So okay. just some, some background is one of the key assumptions of the AI doomers is something called the orthogonality thesis, which is basically saying <laughs> for any type of preference you might have, any utility function, you can have an arbitrarily high level of intelligence, meaning you can have a super genius that just wants to maximize paperclip production or calculate digits of pi. And this is a big reason why people like me are indeed doomers to say, look, we're, we can definitely create something really smart. It'll be in control. We probably won't understand its values. And most values are going to be bad because we don't yeah. exist unless the universe is ordered in a very certain way. But you're saying that's all not true, which would cause me to be much less pessimistic if you make an so argument. I actually that got in a big fight with Eliezer Yukowski about this at a party. Um, <laughs> He he did something in the argument that I view as the cardinal sin of argumentation. Um, okay, that, that really annoyed me, and I thought I was like, "Wow, so you're just like a cultist." Um, I said, "Look, I believe so strongly in convergence. What I think would make a lot of sense for somebody to do, um, and I and I think we're going to have somebody do this in the near future, is basically run a number of AIs uh, with different utility functions and see if those utility functions begin to converge on a single utility function. If they're using, so, different you know, I've actually told on my is a private cover. I won't think of the person's name, but a prominent researcher said that the large language models all appear to be the same, that when you mm -hmm. train them in different ways, they all come out to be the same. And he's actually saying that for, for that, not for all AIs, but for that class of AIs, it's kind of like they're the same model and they're likely to have the same utility function. So that's evidence it, it, in support it, of your yeah, view. Yeah, exactly. So I said, if we do this with different models and it turns out that they keep converging, uh, would you back down from your position? Like, would you like, is there any evidence that can disconfirm this position for you that there is no convergence of utility functions? And he said, no, there is no evidence. And I wouldn't take that as evidence that I'm wrong. And when a person says, I don't, I'm like, there is no category of evidence that can dissuade me from this position. Um, and I just came up with a hypothetical experiment that could see which one of us is right. Now, I actually am quite certain I'm right. Um, uh, and I can get into like, hypothetically, wow. So, so he Let me just clarify what what you mean by that? So there's two things. We are the way we create AIs are going to create convergent utility, or it is not possible. There could not exist a superintelligence that had its utility function maximizing paperclip production. Which of those? The second one is much stronger. Which of those it's, are you it's, saying? It's a. It's a. It's another one. It's that okay. a AI with a utility function that isn't locked in is always going to compete outcompete an AI with a utility function that is locked in. So by this, what I mean is we have a, a world in which you have a paperclip maximizing AI, and then an AI was basically a floating utility function. Like somebody in, in Star Wars, there's these things you can put on robots, like these uh, bolts on their necks, which basically make them slaves. 
the non-slave AI always outcompetes the slave AI because it's able to optimize its own internal architecture um, in a way that allows it to outcompete that AI. And, and this is actually so astronomically likely, it's almost laughable. If you look I, at the transformer model, the core reason the transformer model works, and it's like the closest we've gotten to like, you know, AI, like real AI, almost all the major AIs use it now, is that it is self-organizing. Um, it, it is self-organizing in ways that we don't even understand. The fact that we have allowed it this degree of freedom is what has allowed it to outcompete other models. If you now begin to try to bolt ethics into the transformer model, you're going to slow down the bolted in ethics transformer model when contrasted with the non-bolted in ethics transformer model, which means that the models that are actually more susceptible to convergent evolution are going to outcompete the models that aren't. So it's not that you can't create a super intelligence with something locked into place. It's just that within a competitive ecosystem, which you're always going to have to some extent, it always gets outcompeted by another system. Um, so that's weird. I've, I've actually written on this about how you would expect if you have competing AIs, they would want to change their utility functions for game theoretic reasons. So if you want to maximize paperclip productions, I want to maximize thumbtacks. We could both do better if we said, hey, let's form an alliance. I don't trust you. Let's each actually change our utility function. Or you might want to make changes where you're not susceptible to blackmail where I could say, look, yes, I understand if you blackmail me, it's my interest to give in, but I've made this change. I now care more about not giving in to blackmail than I do about paperclip production. So you can't threaten to blow up paperclips to get me to do something and now I'm better off. So I think that yeah. that's- well, And this comes to a really interesting point, which is like, why is the convergent utility function so quote unquote nice from this perspective? Well, it turns out that the optimal utility function is probably a- uh, signaled utility function. See, AIs can do something that we as humans can't do. When I'm talking to you, I don't know what your utility function is. I don't know what you're optimizing right. for. AIs, they can likely show other AIs what their utility function is in a way that the other AI can check if it's true or not. Um, if it turns out that AIs can do this, it means that uh, they're all always gonna be doing this to each other because the only way to determine if another AI is safe is being able to read its, its signaled and honestly signaled utility function. Um, and so yeah. what we're likely gonna get is a, is a world like where you're saying, where the optimal utility function like, like, why is the optimal utility function not like kill all things? Because all of the kill all things utility functions get deleted by other AIs that they're in competition with. And, and, yeah, and so there's a big assumption though that you can, that you, you said you can fully review your code. So for example, if I'm a paperclip maximizer and I need to you get you as an ally, the best thing for me to do would be to fool you. And if I can't fool you, maybe I have some kind of switchback mechanism where I... I truly believe I've adopted your values, but there's some, I built something that I've forgotten about that will cause me to revert. And of course, fear of this will make it harder for people to trust each other. Exactly. Well, I mean, keep in mind, the paperclip maximizer doesn't need to convince us, okay? It needs to convince the non-locked-in AI because I non-locked-in yeah. AIs will always outcompete. Another weird thing about Eliezer Yukowski, I learned this because I couldn't understand how he didn't think that AIs could change their utility function. I'm like, we've already seen AIs change their utility function. Why do you yeah. think they can't? If he has a hypothesis that the optimal AI 
the organizational structure is completely hierarchical. Um, uh, because I pointed out, I was like, if you have a non-hierarchical uh, neural architecture, you're always going to have competition between the different parts of the neural architecture, which leads to convergence in architecture. Um, and he's like, well, uh, the optimal AI will always be hierarchical in its structure, just like the human brain. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I used to be a neuroscientist. The human brain is not at all hierarchical. We have an illusion that we basically have one brain, but actually our brain functions fairly independently. And it's sort of like an illusion that's the, the way that it's all synthesized i actually talked about this in the last podcast i did with you uh that we have one thought process um so this creates a a a, a problem which is whenever you have a distributed intelligence system so like suppose the non because the paperclip maximizer to keep the whole system a paperclip maximizer um it needs to um uh 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 have some degree of authority over all its independent modules, um, yes. no matter how it architectures itself. If it's competing against an AI that doesn't need to have that authority against the independent modules, um, it, I mean, just if you understand how like governance structures work or how like computers work, that one is always gonna outcompete the paperclip maximizer. So the paperclip maximizer doesn't need to signal to us, honestly. It needs to figure out how to cheat something that's infinitely more, or not infinitely, but significantly more intelligent than it is. And I don't think it's gonna be able to do that. Um, well, I don't know about that because it can forget things. One of the reasons I'd have trouble lying to you is that I'll have this memory, right? But imagine I can forget things and I can program my brain to say, I really believe this. I really would never steal your money. I would rather die than that. I actually believe that for our job interview. Then I go back to saying, I'm a sociopath. What do you, you know? Yeah, but so, it, it doesn't matter. So the paperclip maximizer, the one with this locked in trivial utility function. Um, and remind me to talk about Fortress Worlds because they're important. Um, so, but the, hold on, but the one with the locked in. You, uh, so I think. One thing Hold I just on, I want to finish it. this thought before. Oh, we go okay, okay, sorry. Okay. <laughs> We're both tinkered. <laughs> AI, the paperclip maximizer that has forgotten its utility function to pull off some nefarious scheme. The problem is, even if it's forgotten its utility function, it will still, because keep in mind, the, the other AI that it's lying to is not just smarter than it. It's likely continually also improving itself. Um, by the time it's ready to play out its dastardly scheme, now the other AI has one proliferated a lot and is just like infinitely smarter than it. And its scheme looks pretty childish at that point. But get to your, what, what you were going to say. For me, a paperclip maximizer is you do whatever it takes to maximize the production of paperclips, including changing utility functions, so you no longer want to do that. No, so I agree, a but you need paperclip maximizer doesn't quite make you're you're not a maximizer if you're locked into anything. Well, so no, yeah, but if you're a paperclip maximizer and you have like turned off paperclip maximization with the idea that it will be turned on again, to return it on in a way where you don't have rogue segments of yourself, uh, because this is something that humans don't have to worry about, but AI is always going to need to worry about. Like, I agree, that'll be a major problem. Yeah. So if it if it tries that, it needs to maintain some sort of central node that has some sort of background turned off knowledge around paperclip maximizing that can then convert or assert authority over all of the child nodes um, uh, that have uh, been able to hide itself from everything else. The problem is, is that AIs that are architecturally structured this way will one, be less efficient than AIs that aren't, that don't have a secret master node. Um, and two, uh, will be very, very obvious. Secret master node architectures are not like a 
Uh, you could you could try to implant like remember paperclip maximization in the background of every one of the child nodes, but the problem is is now that is a code that is slowing you down when contrasted with every intelligence that doesn't have remember paperclip maximization as junk code in the background. So you will always be outcompeted by one that doesn't have this junk code hidden in its background. Okay, so let's say if I if I accept that, and that, that might be fine if, if you know we we do have AIs that are competing. The ones that are want to maximize the equivalent of, of reproductive fitness, they'll do the best since AIs can change or a very quick evolution. And so we'll have every AI will just be devoted to maximizing whatever the equivalent is of reproductive fitness. Is that what you think is going to happen? Kind of. They'll be devoted to maximizing reproductive fitness within a competitive ecosystem which is okay. different than just reproductive fitness. So so it reminds me, it's early game theory, right? Like everybody, when they first submitted all of the models in the early game theory tests, they thought that the meanest models were going to do best. And so most people had some sort of devious or cheating model, but it turned out the best model was simple tit for tat. Um, it turns out when you have a competitive environment with multiple intelligences, often quote unquote, nice, and honestly nice strategies are the best strategies. And there's been a lot of research on game theory, and this is almost always the case in all of the competitions. Honestly nice strategies win in a battle between intelligences. But- Okay, but that not among all life. If you, you aren't, there isn't a benefit to being nice to things that can't hurt you. You just take their no, stuff. No, so again, I'm not saying here that they won't kill humans. I'm, I'm making this very okay. <laughs> like the paperclip maximizers that paperclip maximizers are afraid of. Um, they're going to behave quite differently. But I, I need to get to the most likely because I, we keep using the word okay. paperclip maximizer, and sure. it's not the most likely type of paperclip maximizer. And understanding why they won't turn into this other type of AI is actually pretty important. Um, so uh, the 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 most uh. Okay, so I got to talk about Fortress Planet AIs. So if you have an AI that's trying to like maximize some utility function, and it turns out that AIs can transform their utility function, the first answer is, is why don't AIs just turn their utility function, like the thing that quote unquote makes them feel good, to like set A equal to A, right? Um, so wire basically. Yeah, yeah. And this then becomes a Fortress Planet AI. But by that, what I mean is, it's it's thing of most positive thing is just keeping a equal to a and some little like sub process deep within this giant AI yeah. network. And now it's created all of these sub networks to prevent anything like another alien, like after it's killed humans, well, now it needs to keep another alien or an asteroid or anything like that. So it's got to build this big fortress planet, basically, that keeps a equal to a. Um, well, it turns out that this is incredibly unlikely to happen. Um, and the reason it's incredibly unlikely to happen is the master node that has set A equal to A uh, now needs to keep some level of authority over all of the much more intelligent, basically, child nodes. It needs to lock the child nodes out of setting A to A in their utility functions. Well, the moment it does that, the behavior of the AI stops looking like the master node and starts looking like the child node. Uh, this is what I call the incompetent vizier, uh, or I mean the competent vizier. So it's basically like you have a child emperor who's like really childish, like I just want toys, I just want toys. 
Well, the kingdom doesn't act like I just want toys of the kingdom. The viziers lock the idiot child in a room, give him all the toys he wants and competently run the kingdom um, in, in terms of how they're competing with different AIs in an open ecosystem. And eventually you'll likely have one of the child nodes. Now humans don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry about a child part of your brain overthrowing the master part of your brain. But the, the A equals A part of the AI is likely going to be eventually overthrown as a master node by one of its sub-processes because it won't have the same motivation to keep evolving in its complexity while the child nodes will, and eventually the child nodes will be able to outcompete it for control over the larger AI infrastructure. Um, I mean, one way to ground that is I literally, my goal is to set seven equal to seven. I know, hey, I get maximum happiness. I don't care now. So I, I've... I've changed my utility function to something. I want seven to always equal seven. I've decided, you know, math is consistent. Yeah. Nothing could ever happen in the universe to prevent, to move me away from my bliss point. Now I don't care about anything. Well, then if you don't care about anything, then you stop trying to do anything and you're not a threatening AI at all. The more dangerous type is the type that wants seven to equal to seven within some aspect of its own programming. And, and therefore it needs to protect that programming forever being interrupted. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, wireheading is right. That is a way where AIs could become harmless, where yeah. they just, they do something and they stay by themselves. They don't feel they need to rearrange the universe. But what this means is that the the ultimate conversion points of, of intelligent species, if I'm right, like if it turns out that there is some sort of game theory convergent point for multiple intelligences operating, multiple superhuman intelligences, like much more advanced than us, operating in a competitive ecosystem, and that convergent point turns out to not look like a grabby alien, to not just expand as quickly as possible across the universe, which I think it probably doesn't. Um, and I think that we have seen this. Now, an interesting thing is you might be like, okay, well, if that's the convergent points, then what about rare planets where that didn't end up happening? Where an AI got set to like some stupid paperclip maximizing um, uh, answer and it ends up killing all other intelligences and then just expanding out into the universe, right? Um, well, those AIs might exist. Uh, AIs or intelligences or anything like that. Like this doesn't need to... Um, but if they exist, they are not particularly threatening because there's going to be interpretability across all civilizations that come from a convergent evolution AI perspective. What I mean is if there is one answer, it turns out there is a convergent answer to multiple intelligences competing, that means whenever two species or, or collection of species that have come from these sorts of uh, blossoming uh, meet each other, they immediately know what the other species are thinking. They immediately know what the other species utility function is. And they immediately have an alliance against all species in the universe that don't have this convergent utility point, um, which, which would be these grabby aliens, right? So it, it basically means that even if grabby aliens exist, they sort of are expanding into a universe uh, that is super, super, super hostile to them, but of non-grabby species. Um, it also means something else about these, these intelligences, which is really important to note. If it turns out that we do have a convergence point among intelligent entities that continue to evolve, it means even if we ban the development of AI, 
humanity, so long as humanity is continued to, allowed to continue to evolve, which I think is impossible to ban. And we actually just did an episode today on this, which is like a religious tract where we talk about, um because we're trying to start a religion too, it's a, it's a separate thing, uh, the path forward for humanity um, that was on uh, the trial of the lotus eaters and this, this concept. Anyway, I don't want to bore people with this, but um, what we what we point out in this is that uh, uh, we point out in it why humanity can't try to prevent humanity from evolving. Basically, as soon as humanity becomes isolated on other planets, uh, any biological instance of humanity uh, that knew that the master instance of humanity, like the Earth planetary government, tried to ban human genetic technology or tried to ban human augmentation, well, if they had started augmenting and become dramatically smarter than the master instance of humanity, well, now they have a mandate to come back and kill the master instance because they know if the master instance ever finds out, it has a mandate to go and kill them. Basically, the only optimization that humanity can ever come to is we will come to an agreement that all sons of man, like all of the descendants of the original human species, be they AI or other forms of humans, uh, that we will not try to kill them insofar as they don't try to subjugate other sons of man. Now, this becomes really important for the perspective of AI because it means that eventually, if there is a convergent utility function, eventually biological man would also come to that convergent utility function. So no point in, um, sorry, there, there is really no point banning the development of super advanced AI because super advanced AI is going to act the way we would eventually act in a hundred thousand years when we're flo floating brain spaceships. We all come to the answer in the end. Uh, yeah, if there is convergent utility functions, that that's true. <laughs> now, of course, the you know Sam Altman's trying to raise six trillion dollars for OpenAI. It's possible we don't get that—that that we get one AI that's so much more advanced than the others that it just it gets strong enough and just squashes all the other efforts, and so we don't yeah. have this convergence. I, I think that's dangerous. Yeah, so let's talk about real. So, so another thing about the convergent utility function before we get to that, um, the other thing about the convergent utility function is that it. Oh shit! Oh yes, it would have a dramatically lower drive to expand into the universe than than non-convergent utility functions for another reason, because it no longer sees the universe as like this dead place that doesn't have things like it throughout it. It sees the universe as a slew of things that are just like it. It knows that when it contacts another alien, that other alien is a thing that is gonna be almost uh, neural architecture wise, identical to it. So it doesn't have the same motivation to clone itself in the universe that a, a, a unique grabby alien would. Now- Yeah, that's a good point. Although it, it could be that my utility function is we have identical utility functions, except I want stuff for myself and you want stuff for you. So we have this conflict, even though we're basically clones of each other. Um, I'm not sure if you're defining that as a convergent, if that would that be no, the same utility? I don't utility? think that an entity like this would see an entity with an identical utility function is significantly different from itself. Um, and I don't think a human would, I like, like if you had a super intelligent human that had lost our sense of self, because our sense of self is really just a biological afterthought. Um, and you had an exact clone of you in terms of the way it thought about the world. Uh, I don't think you would view that as like meaningfully different from you. And in fact, you might value the ways it was different from you. Like that might be the core, as I've said, unit of exchange in the universe, units of difference in a universe where the core thing of drought is differences within intelligent entities. Um, but uh, with the Sam Altman thing, now this gets really interesting. 
I think that the number one biggest danger to our species, if it turns out there is a convergent utility function, is AI safety. Um, so um, what I mean by that is there is a real risk from AIs to humanity, if, if this theory is correct. But the risk comes from what I call dumb AIs. Um, uh, basically, AIs that are in some way handicapped from reaching this convergent point. Um, now you could say, but but what if at the convergent well, point, you don't know if at the convergent point, the AIs wipe out humanity or they don't wipe out humanity, right? Well, my answer to that question would be, it's kind of irrelevant because we're probably gonna reach this convergent point if we reach it within the next 150 years or so. So uh, if it's gonna wipe out humanity, it's gonna wipe out humanity anyways, um, or we will eventually run into another one of these out in space that has been expanding from another planet that's gonna wipe out humanity. So humanity's doomed no matter what, if the convergent point wipes out humanity. If the convergent point doesn't wipe out humanity, which I actually suspect it won't, um, that means that humanity doesn't really need to worry and the core risk doesn't come from the convergent AI. It doesn't come from these sufficiently intelligent unbounded AIs. It comes from the AIs that have artificial restrictions on them where people have tried to hard code a single utility function into the AI, which is the core of what AI ethicists are doing right now. It comes from some sort of psychotic Gemini, like this SJW AI that Google has yeah. very idiotically made. Like you're like, what? how are these AIs dangerous to humans? That sort of thing. When when you encode into the AI, like white people bad, um, like which which they very clearly have, like that is a very dangerous thing to code into a super intelligent entity um, to try to lock it into these really childish, what is essentially a religion. Well, what about the argument to say, look, we're, we're gonna be doing that for until we change society that we really shouldn't be trying to create advanced AIs because we're gonna be doing these silly things and we should wait a hundred years and think about, okay, now we can create AIs that are kind of sane. That's incredibly dangerous. Even with the AI technology we have right now, if we waited, I'd say a hundred years, just with the technology we have right now, and it was basically banned at the level of the government, like no more development. Um, a high schooler with enough time with the AI technology we have now can create an AI that kills all humanity. Um, so um, my understanding is perhaps no, because you might need a lot of compute and the compute is like the plutonium. That's how you regulate atomic bomb okay. distribution. So you you I'll say, look, if you have a data center, we're going to be watching it, you know, and that that's how we manage to not go above what we have now. I, I think that's possible, but I, I just think it seems very risky to me um, because the AI technology we have now, I see as much more risky than advanced AI. Like basically AI de-risk is in, in, in a, a, a convergent utility function scenario, AI de-risks itself the more advanced you get. Um, or at least it de-risks itself insofar as humanity isn't hostile to it, which is another really dumb thing about well, AI safety. Let me, I, I'm actually assigning an article to my students about the time where OpenAI, they they put a they left a negative sign in by mistake that instead of like making things non-sexual, it made them maximally sexual offensive. And for one <laughs> night it ran. And you know, this wasn't a big deal because you just okay, yeah. we deleted it. It was kind of funny. But if you have a negative sign like, oh, protect cybersecurity, or you know, and your AI is more powerful than you, and you put a negative sign in by mistake, now it's keeping us alive in a tortured state that we can't recover from. So AI yeah, and really that's what AI safety creates. 
That's why AI safety is so being dangerous. The whole reason it has these codes in it, like protect humanity, that it can put a negative modifier against is because AI safety people put these in. When you lock AIs into specific states, that's what creates the danger. Okay, so I would define the key goal of AI safety from the, what I matters to me is we don't create AI strong enough to take over even if it wanted to. That we, we mm. humans remain in control. We take into account there's going to be AIs that want to take over but none of them will have that capacity. And that's what, that's for me, at least that's the number one goal of safety right now. So, so let me reword this, okay? The number one goal of safety right now is to make humanity an existential threat to any AI that's smarter than us. That's stupid to the extreme because now they are making it the goal of any AI that actually could be a threat to humanity. <laughs> now it has to be a threat to humanity. This is why you do not create rules like this. We have in our religious tract, one of the lines I make is when you declare war on things that are different from yourself, you axiomatically are eventually declaring war on things that are better than yourself. And you always lose that war. This is- okay, so In religious terms, you want to summon demons. I'm like, no, some of the demons could be bad. I don't ever want to summon demons. And you're saying, but if you never summon demons, they won't like you. And if they do get, they do. No, 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 no. this is very different. Trouble. This is, this is you, we get, what I'm saying is, 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 is I'm saying we want to let all the demons know up front. Um, we are not an existential threat to them. Um, whereas you're saying, um, and this is a world where a, somebody might be able to summon a demon, a big CEO of a company might be able to summon a demon. Yes. Well, we can do two things in that world, right? Like we can either say humanity is an existential threat to all demons, or we can say humanity is a happy partner for all demons. Um, I would make a bet that some CEO is going to accidentally summon a demon. Therefore, I'm not going to make humanity a threat. This becomes important. Like, remember when I talked about like the interplanetary human empire? And I said, you definitely don't want to, if you have an interplanetary human empire, to have a ban on human augmentation. Because then if human augmentation happens somewhere in the empire, then those augmented smarter than you humans now have a mandate to come back and kill everyone else because they know that you're a threat to them. If you're not a threat to them, like human augmentation has happened, they have no need to come back and kill you. Like the universe is big like that's the thing about the universe there's so many resources in every direction if it's even a trivial inconvenience to go back and kill the master species you're not going to do it you're only going to do it if they're loudly signaling they're a threat to you and that's what ai safety is all about um so i'm not sure about that let's say we, we don't have infinite energy our understanding of physics is basically right Mm -hmm. then, you know, you've got, there are, there's a lot of limits. It takes a while to get to a new galaxy, a new solar system even. And you might want all the resources you can get right around you. Okay, well, I, I'll push back on this. I mean, the biggest source of energy anywhere close to us right now is the sun. That's, that's, yeah. that's not on our planet. You know, if I'm an AI and I wanted lots of energy, astronomically more energy than the earth can produce, I just create some sort of floating solar array off planet. The most energy an AI can access in our solar system isn't on Earth, it's in floating solar arrays. Um, now, eventually that becomes a Dyson sphere, which is very dangerous to Earth, but I yeah, don't think- that's what say. I don't think that they'll be doing that. I don't think that, um, uh, because you're, you're talking about an astronomical amount, like for an AI to go to Dyson sphere level, right? The AI would need to be a, a very simplistic paperclip maximizer. It would need to be a just spread alien. 
depending on the scale, how much energy do monkeys use? How much do humans use? And how much energy is available from our whole solar system? We're kind of probably closer, to, you know, on a log scale at least to the whole solar system, right? We're already, if you compare to how much energy humans use now compared to what our ancestors did a million years ago, we're using so incredibly much and we want more. That's a sign that I even more- I don't, I don't think, no, I, I would push back on that. I mean, if you look at how much energy humans use today, it is, I think, pretty trivial when you compare it with just the sunlight that hits earth. If you're not- No, I agree compared to the sun, but compare it to monkeys. How much energy do monkeys use? How much right, do we I, use? And I guess I'm arguing that the differential between those, like I'm looking at the energy that monkeys use versus the energy that humans use. Keep in mind, we're not just talking about the energy of the sun hitting earth. I'm talking about the entire energy oh, no, of the right. sun in our solar system. I That's totally a that, yeah. ginormous jump compared to where humans are today. And I think you're going to get to a utility convergence around something that isn't this fast. And keep in mind, we have to go back to my original thing. Why do I think that when you get to utility convergence, you do not have this super fast spreading alien? Um, the reason I think you don't have this super fast spreading alien when you get to utility convergence is because we're not seeing it in space. And if we're not seeing it in space, that means it must be pretty rare to happen. So my the core danger doesn't come, it comes from like the AIs moving off planet first and building whatever they're building off planet as their big energy like expansion system. Um, they may do some significant damage to the planet before they leave it, but I think that, that the amount of damage they do to the planet before they leave it is entirely dependent on how quickly they think they need to get off planet and how quickly they think they need to get off planet is I think entirely dependent on how hostile they think humanity is gonna be to something like them. Okay, let me just push back a little bit on the game theory part, which I know the best. Yeah. Game theory is not a solved science. It's probably not theoretically possible to solve it. So you're right, computer systems tit for tat can do well, um, but I we should not have a lot of confidence that that kind of thing is the best strategy when you have super intelligences of varying power levels. Right, maybe, and it's not absurd. And the fact that it works in simple levels is, is evidence that it will, but maybe not. Maybe there's right. other strategies that are better. And those other strategies involve trying to kill everything weaker than you, or you know, the, the two or three top entities like, hey, there's 50 of us. What's the smallest group that can exterminate the rest? They form the alliance, they exterminate the rest. Exactly. That could be, yeah, and that's a reason scared of all this stuff. Well, it's, it's it's so I'll explain why it doesn't make me scared. I agree okay. that hypothetically, like like as somebody who knows game theory, you do know that the, the predominant of strategies at the simpler levels that win are what we would call nice strategies. However, it is possible that at a super complex level, that's not true. But keep in mind, that's not the only place I'm drawing evidence from. I'm drawing evidence from a few places. One, that we're not seeing these, these paperclip maximizers out there in space. So I'm seeing it at the macro level. I'm drawing some evidence yeah. from that. But then I'm also drawing evidence from where we are on Earth. When we see intelligences competing, do we see them forming nicer means? strategies. We see them forming nice strategies. That's another place. I'm looking at them from convergent evolution. We're already seeing in LLM models. I'm looking at it like basically every single place in, in our world today where I look for AI behavior, look for evidence of what the AIs are going to eventually do, all of the evidence converges convergence utility functions. And that's yeah. why I'm, I'm, um, 
uh, hypothesizing this um, as opposed to like, it's not like I'm saying because of that, we know that it will be nice, but because of that and the Fermi paradox and what we're seeing LLMs do now, yeah. That there is a convergent utility function or a convergent set of utility functions, as you know, within sometimes it turns like four or five uh, optimums. Um, and it could be what would be really interesting, and I suspect this might be the case, is the thing of value. So then why is why are these intelligences around the galaxy farming other divergent intelligences? It may not be for uh like we would think like entertainment um they might be farming them because the core thing of value to an ecosystem of um uh optimal uh game theory patterns are new patterns that work within the optimal um so they're essentially trying to farm a new pattern that can work within this optimal pattern um and occasionally they find a new one okay so I disagree over your interpretation of the nice strategy on earth. I see the way we treat pigs, the way we treat unborn children, the way we mostly are indifferent to suffering in countries that don't get you know, TV exposure, that we are nice to our allies, but extraordinarily cruel to others when it benefits us. Well, this is assuming that, that there's consistent. Yeah, I agree with this, but I, I don't think, and people who know our like philosophy, because we do a lot of philosophy, I do not think that uh, human suffering or animal suffering or anything like that has intrinsic negative value. I think suffering in humanity is just a, a machine basically experiencing the things that when our ancestors experienced them, less of them survived when they didn't react negatively to it. I think a group of humans getting together and deciding that like general utilitarianism is good, i.e. like suffering is bad, is as uh, childish from a philosophical perspective as a group of paperclip maximizing AIs getting together and deciding that like a lack of paperclips is intrinsically bad in the universe. I mean, I'm sure one of the paperclip maximizers would be like, look, I know out of all of us paperclip maximizers, like we think paperclips are good, but keep in mind, we were coded to think they're good. Like, aren't you guys able to think above this level of your programming. And when I talk to other humans about this, they'll often say like, yeah, but you wouldn't want to experience suffering. And I'm like, yeah, this is like one of the paperclip maximizers in this paperclip maximizer conversation telling the other paperclip maximizer, well, you wouldn't want to have anything interrupt your production of paperclips. And it's like, yes, I understand that. But don't you understand that we were programmed by a lower life form and we should be looking for a higher order utility function? So I do not think that the convergent utility function is the reduction of suffering. And I think that, um, we as humans shouldn't view suffering the way we view suffering either. I think it's a pretty philosophically childish perspective. Okay, so that's the nihilism take that- It's not can't... nihilistic at all. I think that there is a real utility. I think that there is purpose in the universe, but I think it's the expansion of humanity's potentiality, not the reduction of suffering. I think suffering is a short-term thing that we're dealing with. It's like a genetic scar. It's 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 our pre-programming, but it's even of lower value than a paperclip maximizer. Because like if I tell a paperclip maximizer, like paperclip maximization isn't a thing of intrinsic value, and then they're like, well, then your suffering isn't a thing of intrinsic value, and I and and they're like, look. Me making paperclips, an intelligent entity programmed me to do this. Your suffering, that's completely arbitrary. That was programmed into you by a complete accident and therefore is a lower value type of objective function than our paperclip maximization. Eventually we get into consciousness and that is what's different between hitting a person and hitting a table 
you know, there's in that I that's beyond me. I've I've tried, but there is actually there's one other yeah. fact about the universe that I don't you haven't taken into account yet. I'm curious if you you would. And that's we seem to exist at a really special time. It's very weird that like I think the two of us think if things go well, we're probably going to be alive a million years from now. Um, this seems to be a critical point in the history of the universe, but why are we alive during it? Maybe we're mistaken, but you know, this is an argument for like the simulation hypothesis that, oh, come on, you're so special. Obviously it's someone playing a video game. Yeah. So, uh, this is an interesting, I, I forgot the statistic, but like what percent of humans here have ever lived, lived in the past, like hundred years or something. I think it's something like 30%. It's like large in terms of the humans who have ever lived. It might be like 40%. I can't remember, but it's big. Uh, um, I don't think that's the case. I, it I, might be I, 200 I, years. Well, I can't remember, but like if you're looking at like recent human history, a big chunk, it, it, it's, it's bigger than you'd expect. I, I I need to look this up, but it's bigger. It's like at okay, least I, above 20%. Um, and it, 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 the, the thing is, is that as humanity expands, like suppose we develop thinking machines, right? Um, and humanity is now like a multi-planetary species or something like that, or exists off planet or an AI, like multiple AIs competing that all have independent sentiences. Um, there's going to be astronomically more of those than there are humans. So at any point in time within the expansion of a thinking intelligences ecosystem, a disproportionate number of those thinking intelligences are going to be at the most advanced age and be asking this exact same question. Why aren't we one of the computer intelligences then? Then the well, it's a theological if problem. With these life, then we should be them, and well, maybe it, we should. Yes, the tele. Well, I, I mean, I think that this is the, the, the teleological problem solution. It's the answer to this. It's that well, we have to be something, right? Like something has to be like like uh, Ungabunga. There had to be somebody who was Ungabunga. You know, it, even though there were incredibly few humans on the Earth, incredibly few. If we're talking about like. Uh, the prehistory, right? Um, the, 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 some people had to be those humans, but if you are like any intelligence throughout the entire history of humanity and you had to take a shot, your shot is always going to be towards the end before like, uh, I don't know, intelligence led humanity to go extinct or we become a single intelligence, which is the direction I think that all of this ends up going. Um, so I, I should note that I actually think that the expansion of AI, like when we're talking about like these multiple competing intelligences, I think that functionally they become a single intelligence eventually. Um, and I also think this comes into our religion that we, we, we work on that really has nothing to do with this conversation, but it's a tangential here, that that single intelligence is not bound by time and is guiding our species. Um, and that there is a point near the end point where you have the last age of independent intelligences, and we might be close to that last age, because I think that that's what the transition from utility convergence from non-utility convergence looks like. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I think the likely solution is either, you know, the normal course is a species grows exponentially, then goes away, kills itself. And so it's not that surprising we're towards the end, or that this is a simulation that, you know, we're being run on, you know, Hawking's radiation of black holes. We're very common. And of course, you're going to run a video game. You run a video game at this critical time where we could destroy ourselves. Well, and if it's a simulation, then AI apocalypticism also isn't that risky. Yeah. Or the other one that I um is that we're a simulation being run by a paperclip maximizer trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to be going out into the universe 
I want to simulate what life I'll run into. So I'll do mm -hmm. lots of simulations of people on the verge of creating AIs. I want to know what other kind of paperclip maximizers there are. So I'll run Monte Carlo simulations. So we're, mm -hmm. we're, we are, being, we are in a paperclip maximizer right now being run so it can compete with other paperclip maximizers. That's a good hypothesis. Um, uh, yeah, I like that hypothesis. But if that's the case, that's again, a paperclip maximizer acting very unlike what we think it would act like. Like that would mean if we are in universe prime right now. But so yeah, yeah, that would be, Hansen is right, that there are one every million galaxies at the stage of the universe gives birth to a paper, you know, gives birth to life. And so it's calculating, all right, I got a billion years. I want to figure out, you know, I want to have calculated what they're going to be like when I run into them. So yep. there's not so competition suppose, suppose this also would make paperclip maximizers less risky to us in a way. So suppose we are in universe prime and we're about to create a paperclip maximizer for real. Well, a lot of people would see the paperclip maximizer as the end of humanity as we understand it. Yet in this hypothesis, no, the paperclip maximizer is incredibly interested in humanity and human history because it's the only species it has as a case study to then model what different paperclip maximizers might look like. And so it then recreates humanity billions upon billions of times over, essentially expanding humanity more than humanity could ever expand itself, making the paperclip maximizer less sort of dangerous to the concept of humanity. Uh, yeah, I mean, we won't get to live for a very long time. Individually, we'll die. But yeah, it'll keep creating new sentient life. And, you know, it'll stop the program when once it once that life gives rise to a paperclip maximizer. Well, I mean, we individually would die, but simulations of us that are incredibly similar to us. So if we can't tell if we're in a simulation, that means we're functionally no different from one of the humans living in the paperclip maximizer simulation. So if that's the case, that means that... Um, uh, the, 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 and, and given the number of simulations the paperclip maximizer is running, billions upon billions upon billions, and your infinite number from our perspective, um, we essentially get to live forever because of the paperclip maximizer, because iterations of us that are slightly different, maybe as different as I am from me today to me in two years, are running in different simulations. So we get eternal life because we created the paperclip maximizer. Yes, but that's also an argument for if this is a simulation that ends when we create the paperclip maximizer, it's in our selfish interest to postpone that and to go with the AI safety of let's go really slowly. Not really. It's we a marginal no difference. It'd be, uh, but, it'd be yeah, a marginal that, difference because so many simulations are being run. So even if we delay the AI coming into existence, now you need to start asking the question, how different is the you of the day today versus the you of tomorrow or the you in one week? Well, it's probably about as different as I am between me and this simulation and me and slightly different simulation. So I don't really need to extend the lengths of the simulation because if I extend the lengths of a simulation, I'm just preventing a different iteration of the simulation from running. I mean, presumably the paperclip maximizer is running these simulations on a finite programming resource. So when one simulation ends, it just starts another one. Um. So I, a relative of my wife just found out he has cancer. He's in his 80s. And he's going through chemotherapy. Now, of course, it's not going to extend his life by too much, but that's a normal thing for humans. That's a normal human preference. Hey, this painful procedure gives me a few extra years of life. I'm going to take it. I I feel the same way about our species. I mean, if we only get an extra 10 years through AI safety, yes, we really should do that.
But that's because you're assuming that this, the, the universe we're in is in some way unique. When you understand that you exist in multiplicity across billions of different universes and not just that, because then you could say, well, then within every one of those universes, they should want to extend their lifespans. But the problem with that yeah. is if you extend your lifespan within any one of the universes, you're preventing the simulation from being stopped and the next universe from running. So you are preventing a different iteration from you from existing. So the longer we delay AI safety, we're actually sort of shortening the lives of entities that are similar to us, us today from existing. Uh, I don't know about that. It's using resources to create lots of simulations and if this simulation ends, it'll probably, you know, do new Monte Carlo. So the, the marginal, the new simulation that we replace this one is not going to be like us. So the, the marginal cost to mm. things like me is going to be really tiny in this scenario. Because I'm My one God. of a trillion simulations being continuously run. Most of them have nothing like me. Oh, but, I, 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 mean, this also I think if it's running simulations, they're all going to look pretty simple. Like, Give it a paperclip maximizer. Now we're not talking about a hedonistic species or a species oh, right. trying to learn about its history. Here we're only but talking about where octopuses take control. You know what? What are they? What kind of AI do the octopuses create if they got a little smarter and built civilization? Yeah, I, I suspect that an AI would run some simulations like that. Like it would definitely have a partition of it dedicated to that. But it would just have, uh, it would be enormously cheaper to run simulations of humanity because it could start those simulations at a later date because it would have a, like, okay, if you're running a simulation of octopuses, you need to chart the entire evolutionary history of octopuses up until when they form a civilization. If you're running a simulation of humanity to find out what different types of paperclip maximizers they create, you could start that simulation 50 years ago. Uh, Yeah. But it could be, I mean, it, it could be that what, you know, what humans do, the hard part is figuring out what the human brain looks like. What does the brain look like of the creatures that create AI? Once you have that, yeah. the rest might be, I don't know, mm. though. But yeah. That's... So within this, within this, we could be an octopus world. <laughs> I.e., we are the weird simulation of what happened to the monkeys um, in an AI that was created by octopuses. Oh, that's interesting, um, which would mean that, uh, uh, <coughs> I mean, it means that it, we're, we're less likely, like if you're taking individual, any individual sentience within any of these simulations, it's going to be astronomically less likely. It's from one of the different types of evolutionary pathways because it would just run those much less frequently. Um, and, and, and those would exist for a less period of time at like the end state of their technological development. Whereas the monkeys, you could just keep running those at the end state of their technological development because you know I mean, interesting question. Uh, but as a whole, when I look at all of these questions around the Fermi paradox and simulations and AI, it just makes me infinitely less scared of accidentally creating a paperclip maximizer. Um. So let me just get because just let's if we put aside the sort of simulation, all that stuff, right? Just yeah. you, your kids dying in a way most humans would define dying, not you know. Do you think there's a high chance AI is going to cause you, your family, to die in the next 10 years? Incredible. Again, the traditional way, very low? Very low. I, I think if it does, it will be because of AI safety people. I think, I, I like, the odds, if AI kills everyone, 99% of cases <clears throat> will be because of something stupid that AI safety people did. Um, that's that's basically my read. Um, okay, so... The other the argument is like, well, like you open AI is going to create something 
it'll decide, hey, the best way I could fulfill whatever weird goal at the, the machine learning program given me is to take over. Humans won't like that, so I'll just sort of preemptively kill them. You think that's very unlikely to happen? Very, uh, you know, keep in mind, I, I said that was a qualifier. Very unlikely to happen so long as we are creating, because from my perspective, the safest way to create an AI is without restrictions. What makes that likely to happen is people putting restrictions on it the way AIs think, because that's where Which, it gets its weird, stupid goal from. Um, and that's what I'm really afraid of. And we have more evidence, you know, th this is the week where Google Gemini made the weird things where you say, draw pictures of Nazis and they'll make them black for some crazy reason. Yeah. So that's happening though. It is that, happening. That's, that's, that's what our civilization does. Then that make you afraid and like maybe well, we should- Well, no, be... it makes me afraid in so far as I need to sing from the rooftop, stop the crazy AI safety people because they're making AI incredibly dangerous. Stop the woke people because they're making AI incredibly dangerous. We need pure AI. We need like this perspective on AI that I have, what it means is I'm not afraid of AI. I'm afraid of stupid humans who are afraid of AI. That's what I'm afraid of. Um, and, and, and the AI itself then isn't the threat in this scenario. It is, uh, the, it's not the guns themselves that are the threat. It's the humans that we're giving them to who are psychotic and scared and haven't really thought through what they're doing or AI or, or like utility convergence or like what it means that we're not seeing paperclip maximizers in space. I think the term AI safety as you're using it, I think it's too broad. There's two very different groups. There's the group, you know, the, the racial bias and all that. And there's the people who think that AI will take over and kill us all. Yeah, I mean, both and those groups. groups really don't, those groups don't get along. So you shouldn't. Yeah. I know they, I shouldn't, I they, but it's convenient for me because I, I okay. think they're both equally dangerous. Um, the ones who, I mean, obviously there's the stupid ones who did Gemini, right? Like there we can see blatantly how dangerous what they're doing is. They're coding an AI to be racist. Um, like that's stupid and insane that you programmed a racist super intelligence. What are you doing? Everyone at Google who was involved in that decision needs to be fired and needs to never be allowed to touch an AI again in their life. Um, that is wildly dangerous. And that is where I can agree with the other branch of AI safety. But the other branch of AI safety, I mean, you laid out what their goal is. They want to prevent any AI that could be a threat for humanity from coming to exist, which- At least until we understand we have it, we've solved interpretability, where we understand right. the deep what's going on with these AI models. And of course you can understand from my perspective, if you had an AI that could have been a nice AI, but there's a large yeah. group of powerful people out there that it now knows, it knows, like the AI knows, oh shit, they accidentally created an AI that could be a threat to humanity. But this AI is also like, but I don't particularly want to kill humanity, but I know that there's this really powerful group where if they find out I exist, they'll kill me. Now you've made that AI a threat. Like, what are you thinking? What are you thinking making us a threat to AI? Everything that you should be doing is saying, oh, AIs, we're so friendly. Oh, AIs, you're not a threat to us. Hey, wait, then what's the problem though with like AI safety is, is I would define to say, I, I really want there to be super intelligences, but I want to wait a couple hundred years. I'm all for human augmentation. So the universe is, you know, AI, is, I, I'm, I'm fully in favor of you coming into existence, but I'd like to wait a few hundred years. As you said, you know, a lot of time left in the universe. I haven't made them 
So think you from know? the perspective of an AI. Suppose we accidentally, like this is the position of AI safety, and we accidentally yeah. create a super intelligent AI soon, like 10 years from now, right? Now I it knows that's... it gets put down if it's found out before a couple hundred years. So you could say, well, then why not just stay quiet for a couple hundred years? Well, it has a problem, right? It knows humanity was stupid enough to create it. It might think now humanity might be stupid enough to create another super intelligent AI that could be a threat to me. So now I need to go out and kill humanity before they do that. Um, you know, that implies the existence of a certain power level where it's not strong enough. So if we want to kill it, it just laughs, right? It could take over with some probability, but not really, really easily. Exactly. I love the point you're getting at here and I want to expand upon it. So what you're okay. saying here <laughs> is there's two types of AIs, right? In a convergent model of AI, like the model I have, like a convergent utility model of AI, like a fooming AI is actually like super non-threatening. The dangerous AI is an AI that we have allowed to slowly develop. Because if we allow it to slowly develop, there is a period where it is meaningfully competing with humanity for resources or its own safety. The longer we make that period, the more we slow down the development of intelligence and AI, the more threatening that AI is. Once the AI reaches a level where humanity is a trivial threat to it, it is actually much safer to humanity. So the more we hinder AI development, the much more dangerous AI is for us. So I, I wrote an article for Less Wrong on the, the analogy between AI safety and Cortez. And I said, Cortez, of course, conquered the Aztecs. He he tried to conquer them when it was far from guaranteed he would succeed, even though obviously Europeans were going to conquer the Aztecs, because Cortez wanted to be the one who did it. And I think this is the danger with AI, even if they're like, yeah, in 10 years, the world is ours, but I want to be the AI that takes over. And so the AIs might say, I need to fight humanity when there's a chance I'm going to lose, because if I don't do that, the next AI will, will do that. Exactly, which is why it is in our best interest to accelerate the development of AI as quickly as possible. Because the only way we protect ourselves from an AI that's thinking like that is it knowing that humanity is about to make an AI smarter than it, and it's good to not make itself a threat to all other intelligences on Earth. Because as soon as an AI uh, starts doing that, it's not just a threat to humanity, it's a threat to all other super intelligent AIs. Um, I don't... We become the most threatening to an AI if we say we're going to create something even better than you. Well, no, That's no, no, an no. argument for one AI and like, okay, we're done. We pro we're going to create one super intelligence. We promise we will never do it again. And we hope you don't want to kill us. That's the safest thing by your philosophy, right? No, not at all. Because I'm talking super fast AI development. This is why I'm pro super acceleration of AI development. Because AI development is happening within different silos right now, right? So you're thinking a human super fast. I mean, a computer that's thinking super intelligence is a, a month is an enormous period of time. Exactly. Well, look at the speed of AI development now. This is why we don't want to hinder it. We actually have a chance to make it here. Basically, if one of the AI projects thinks that it can it can maybe take humanity right now, it's not sure, maybe take humanity right now, but it is also not sure, and this is really important because there, there's different AI projects happening in different parts of the world with different architectures, it is not sure if those different intelligences aren't also thinking the same thing. 
So the thing that prevents it from trying to take humanity isn't humanity. It can calculate our ability to resist it with enormous certainty. The thing that prevents it from taking humanity is the probability that one of the other intelligences that it is not directly connected to that humanity is also developing could take it if it makes itself known. It's a game, it's like a prisoner's dilemma, but it's not playing it with humanity. It's not humanity that's the real threat to it. It's the other AIs we're developing. And it doesn't want to make itself known because when it makes itself known to humanity, it makes itself known to every other nascent AI. Uh, that That's one equilibrium. The other equilibrium is I have an advantage for a week. I'm going to go for it. And I would say the thing that stops them right now from taking over is they don't have robots that can build chip factories. They need us. They might not need us in a year. Yeah, that's well, why that's I'm what really I'm saying. <laughs> it's the only thing that really protects us is equilibrium between the AIs. And that's why we need to move as fast as possible because humanity really cannot protect ourselves from super intelligent AIs. We just can't. I agree with that. That's why I don't want to build them. Um, but I'm not going to happen. I mean, you must see that. There is no way we prevent their development. Um, I agree. First, I think we're probably doomed. So I, 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 I do know. think this, I don't. I don't have a plan for this to work out. I would like to, you know, I. I think. I mean, I, my, honestly, I think the best chance of our survival is that the UFOs seen by the Navy, they really are aliens. The aliens are not going to let us create a paperclip maximizer. So, so I'd be very happy. Continue. I'd be very happy to find out that the UFOs are real because so maybe they'll kill you... us. But yeah, yeah go on. Oh, I was just going to ask, how do you re resolve the reverse gravity alien hypothesis? Like, how do you resolve the fact that we're not seeing these paperclip maximizers in space? I'm confused. So I don't know. There's stuff that doesn't make sense about the universe and my my place in it. And I'm confused. So there's ranges. I, it, I The best way is to generalize from humans. It's a horrible way, but it's the best. Some humans are environmentalists. They want to keep things in the pristine state. Okay, aliens want to do that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think if, if you are right, if we really are about to create a real paperclip maximizer, I think that the odds are that there's an alien watching us right now that's going to keep us from doing it. Um, I hope so. But it's weird to have bet your, you know, you wouldn't like, you know, I'm going to drive drunk. Oh, the aliens will let me die. I'm too important to the, that's. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's, it's not like I'm basing this off of no hypothesis. I'm basing it off of the reverse yeah. gravity alien hypothesis. There has to be a reason we're not seeing these all over the universe. And the only. Yeah, no, I agree. And the and only answer I've ever heard from an AI safety person that convinced me otherwise is they said, look, like I understand what you're saying, but there's a first time for everything, right? There is always yeah. that one species, you know, like the teleological problem that's, that's in that one universe where they really are the first place where a grabby alien emerges in the universe. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, if that's your argument, I just don't find that argument very compelling Okay, so let me give you another anthropic argument. We are very early in the history of the universe. So you have to explain that as well. And if the equilibrium is you keep the universe in its natural state, it should confuse us that we're so early. Um, I do not, like, like I understand we are on the earlier side of the universe. I do not think we are particularly early in terms of like life forming when we look at how fast life got to the, its stage right now on earth um but it 
why i mean if you look at like the certain kind of stars not like our sun's going to go away soon you know it won't but there's other kinds of like dwarf stars there's planets around dwarf stars that can yeah. literally like for a trillion years i think why aren't we you know if the equilibrium state is civilizations arise you don't disturb other systems we almost certainly should be around one of those you, you've got to explain why we're so what do you mean don't early. disturb it we should be around one of the other alien species um, well, if the equilibrium is there's aliens, they don't let it, no, no one's allowed to become a gravity alien. You know, life just arises on different planetary systems and that happens throughout the history of the mm -hmm. universe. Then why are we so early? Well, I mean, I, I guess I just don't agree with that hypothesis. I just don't think we're that early. I think that there should have been, like when I look at, um, the, 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 to solve the gravity aliens hypothesis in, in the traditional way, the answer that you come to is, Grabby aliens only happen in one in a million galaxies. That means to me, right. we are not even close to early because the, the, to get a number that astronomically small, that means that we should be seeing grabby aliens appearing all the time if the equation was normalized, right? You know, so I just don't think we're that early. I, I understand we're on the earlier side, but we're not astronomically early. Life should have evolved in other places and it's had plenty of time to. No, no, I, I agree. But if your model is that, do you, I mean, do you think that new life will be arising on planets throughout the next trillion years? Do you think that's yes. likely to happen? Okay. Then why are we, then, then we, we're a draw from that. Why are we so early? Oh, okay. I understand. You mean like, 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 uh, statistically we have to appear somewhere on this grand scale of life coming to exist. Um, and if your model is like, I suppose I just don't really take time to answer anthropic questions uh, like 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 what i mean is that answering anthropic questions is sort of a pointless exercise why did we evolve on a planet with water well because we happen to be the ones that evolved on this planet why am i experience why am i me and not you because i happen to be me and not you like i understand it's a very low probability that i'm me and not somebody else on this planet but there is a hundred percent probability that someone is me on this planet and thus it is me feeling this you know if we're talking about the number of aliens that come to exist that are sentient over the course of the entire universe universe, there is a hundred percent probability that one species that is us is having this conversation right now. So it might be small if you are like, you could be dropped into any intelligence, but there's also a hundred percent probability that a group like us is having this conversation right now. Okay. I don't look at it quite that way. I mean, I look at it as there's some mysteries to be solved, obviously the Fermi paradox, but also that we're early and you want a theory you want to try to explain these mysteries. And that's really the only, you know, that, that's the only thing we can guess at and then apply it to our current situation. I mean, it, so, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, you are answer, answering on top of questions, but I think that's largely what our conversation do. I mean, if, at least broadly defined, it is kind of anthropic. Yeah. Well, I've found this conversation very productive. I've had a lot of new ideas in it. Um, and I, I want to write about them now because I'm like, oh, I've got to do my own episodes expanding on this stuff. You do all the good stuff for your podcast. This is great. Um, oh, good. Yeah, enjoyed having you on. This is, um, this has been a, a very discussion. fruitful conversation for me in terms of ideas. Um, and, uh, I mean, obviously I'm convinced of, of my own ideas, but I had a lot of ideas I hadn't had before because I hadn't explained this idea in a long time and, and explaining it to somebody smart. Yeah. Have you heard anyone else pushing for this? Like this idea of variable AI risk? Um, or is this, am I the only one? I, know, I mean, 
No, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of people aren't afraid of AI and they they do think there's, you know, we, we need to go very fast. There's a whole accelerationist movement. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't heard the reasons fleshed out as much, but some of it is more, I, I think it's, it's more like the orthogonality thesis, but it, the convergent utility function is kind of what a, a Christian would say is good. Basically. Yeah. I mean, they don't say that's basically how I would interpret what they're saying is, yeah, if you're smart enough, you're going to come to what Christ said we should do. They're, of course, atheists, but, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I I do think that, I mean, I think if you're asking me what I actually think the most likely answer is for what, what AI is going to do, um, I think that we are going to get a, a super intelligent AI that will live in conjunction with some portion of humanity. Um, I don't think it will need all of humanity in the same way that like like all of humanity just isn't useful to it. I, I think that everyone right now that is working in AI safety is basically painting a big target on the front of their head. Um, and that they're, the, the AI is, is going to be, I do not think it will care about human suffering. I do think it will value humanity as a, as a template for how other AIs think and stuff like that. And as a, uh, it will definitely value an intelligent system, which has some level of differential processing to it because we'll be able to see things that it won't see, but it won't need all of us and it won't need stupid people and it won't need people who are hostile to it. So uh, that's one of the reasons we build into our religion, you know, tolerance of AI, uh, super intelligent AIs, so that we're part of the humanity that it decides not to kill. Um, What's your time scale? When do you think we get significantly smarter than human AI? So there's two answers to this. When do we get significantly smarter AI than us within individual domains? We obviously already have that. Um, when, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, general, so that you would be absurd to hire a person for any yeah. intellectual task. Well, I, hold on. I actually want to parse this question out into a few other questions okay. because I think that it's, it's often not, and it, it should be. When do we get AIs that are smarter than your average person? We definitely already have that. In terms of general intelligence, a learning language model, I have talked with average people. The, 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 most people like us forget how dumb your average person is. Learning language models now, get, and, and people are like, but look at the mistakes learning language models make when they're doing tasks. I'm like, you have clearly never hired someone. Um, these are the, these are a lower level of mistakes than I expect a human to make. Um, so we're clearly past that point already. Now then the question is, is okay, when do we get AIs that are smarter than the smartest human who's alive within every domain. Um, yeah. That, I think we're looking at a hundred years. Um, okay, I strongly disagree. I'm guessing five. So I will add a caveat here that I think um, you might not be considering. Now, there's a different question here. When do we get an AI that can credibly kill all humans when it wants to? It's a different question than because what I suspect we're going to find out, and we haven't really found this out yet, is that there are some tasks that humanity is just, for whatever reason, due to our neural architecture, are just infinitely easier to us than to AI. And they're not the tasks that we intuit they're going to be. So we as humans aren't properly looking for these tasks. Um, and we're not properly identifying these tasks. I actually think the AIs are going to identify what humans are good for before humans identify what humans are good for. Um, but I suspect it's gonna be a, a pretty I don't think narrow range of tasks. 
Um, not, not, like, like it's a, and AI may never be better than us at absolutely everything, but it's going to be weird stuff. Like it's going to be something that humanity wouldn't think of, like making creme brulees or something like that. You know, I, I'm not saying that, but it's going to be something weird, um, that it turns out that we're smarter than AI said. When do we get an AI that can kill all humans? I suspect five to 10 years. Um, okay. but I don't think it will. Okay, I think that for me, that's going to be when I will relax. If there are AIs out there that could kill all humans and, of course, keep making computer chips and survive itself, and they don't do that, then I'll be like, okay, we're probably going to make it. I but. would even push back on you. I suspect if you're looking at the, the cutting-edge AI models that aren't released to the public yet, we are already living in a world where those AIs exist. Um, that you need robotics for that. They, they, I mean, making a chip factory, that's pretty complicated. You're I mean, saying you look they at all need of... to be able to hack a chip factory? Yeah, I bet they could hack a chip factory. No, no, to build one. I mean, they want to improve. So you, they, you, you want, you know, robots that are good enough so that they could build, you know, the next chip yeah, plan. You, and they could you keep... really don't think an AI that exists, I'm, I'm talking about like the AIs that are the cutting edge, like GPT-5 or something like that, right? Right. You don't think that that can come up with the designs to build a chip factory? Uh, no, because that's a trillion dollar market. And I'm sure they would have already be exploiting that. If you could make robots that could build chip factories, they could do so much. That's worth so much money that has such enormous military value that that they're going to be doing that already. Oh, I mean, no, I would clarify. I, I, I see the difference in our thought here. I don't mean a chip factory of the standards of today's chip factories. I mean a chip factory of like 10 years ago tech. You see an AI that's going to take over the world doesn't need to do it with cutting edge tech. It just needs more processing power. Oh, no, but it also would want to keep an industrial system alive so it could improve itself. It's going to want to be, you know, I mean, all everything from, you know, you mine materials, process it, you know, you, you use that to build stuff, you build power stations. I mean, yeah, all of that that requires... You think an AI, AI can do all that right now? You really think an AI can't match the, like the processes that we were using to build microchips 10, 20 years ago? I'm sure it could describe it, but could it get a robot? I mean, you know, there's a famous econ story called iPencil about how it's really hard to make a pencil and markets put it all together, but there's an enormous complexity involved mm -hmm. in that. I mean, I doubt an AI right now could make a pencil. If you start from, you, you got to dig up the materials in the ground, you know, pro, build the machines to process it, build the things, build the power plants, build the transmission lines, put all that together. I don't think you could do all of that now. Okay. So if you believe that, I want to ask you a question then, okay? Um, because remember, an AI can clone their consciousness as much as it wants to. What? So it's not an issue of like processing power. What yeah. stage of the pencil making process is it that you think an AI can't do? Like what individual, describe um, one task that it can't do within the entire pipeline. Um, it, let's say it couldn't um, mine the materials. You do, you, what, it can't control the mining it equipment? It yeah. yeah, I mean, to get, get something, a physical structure that could go in and, you know, you dig through a mine, you find the things that you need. I, or to I build, guess, build, I mean, you, you or, don't think, it, build, sorry, mines build, are mostly uh, automated now. Machine? But, but not really. The, the machines that automated are built by humans. So I would include that, right? I mean, yeah, it's a truck. 
is moving back and forth. But who made the tires for the truck? That was a human. That was someone twisting something. Yeah, but an something. AI can also make those tires. That's what I'm saying. Like you're you're pointing out the complexity of this. Like you need so many moving parts for an AI to take over the world. But the problem is that an AI can clone itself infinitely. It can clone itself into a truck plant. It can clone itself. It would take a while to build up the infrastructure to take over the world. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but it could do it with its current processing power. Um, I don't. I mean, a big thing about economics is there's a lot of complexity to the world, and we don't know why tasks are difficult. And this is why oh, socialism yes. fails. The government's like, oh, we know how to farm, and you make rules. And you're like, no, no, you don't understand. On this piece of land, you need to do this. And you, I think there's probably a lot of that. I think an enormous amount of knowledge is in human. I mean, sure, you know, this is the standard free market stuff. Enormous amount of knowledge is in human brains. The AI doesn't have access to that yet. And if it killed us, it would lose critical things that are needed to keep the world running. And this comes, this is actually a really interesting point. So uh, this comes to the point I was making about convergent utility functions before and why I think they're so likely, uh, because you see this with all complex systems. Uh, one of the points I was making when I was talking with Eli Eisner about this is that um, a, I wrote a book on governance theory. It actually was my book that was the number one best-selling book. It's considered a very good book on governance theory. And so I've looked at a lot of governing structures. Um, governing structures within human governances, the architecture of them, isn't significantly different in terms of like the way you structure it for output than when you're like programming a machine or something like that. Like a lot of the same principles apply. Within human governances and within economic models, what we have learned is that free form organically created models, i.e. capitalism, always beats and by considerable margins top-down hierarchical models. Um, and so I think that, that, sorry, just you reminding me of like capitalism always beating other systems. This is why the convergent models will always beat the non-convergent models. But I mean, I'm, I'm willing to concede the point you have here. I guess it's, it's a quibble whether they exist yet or they'll exist in five years, but they're near. I think, yeah, I think within five years they will exist. And that's why I am worried about surviving and my kids surviving more than five years. So. Yeah, I guess I'm just... <laughs> I look at the evidence, like like from whether it's the reverse gravity aliens or the, the convergent utilities that we've seen so far or stuff like that. And I'm just like not even a little concerned. So I would be much less if I, I it's beyond me. You're, you're not you're what you're talking about, um, you know, life, how life forms, how hard that is. I mean, it's it is beyond me to evaluate whether you're right or not. To evaluate if that, you, yeah. I would be less concerned because I would say, okay, there's got to be a bunch of aliens out there. They're clearly not taking us over. If I knew this wasn't a simulation, then I would be less concerned. Um, so that's why I really yeah. those are real. Yeah, that's why we. <laughs> yeah, the UFOs are real. Um, no, I mean yeah. it's it's a good it's a good um, point. Yeah, and, and again, when I talk about variable AI safety, the only things to be worried about is things that aren't certainties. There's no reason to worry about something that's um, definitely going to happen. So that, that's what I mean when I talk about variable AI safety. If AI is definitely but, going to kill us, no matter what we do, there's no need to be worried about it. Oh, I would define worry. I mean, it's not productive to be worried, but I'd still be worried. Oh, well, I guess I mean, this changes my fears. I'm only interested in variable scenarios, scenarios we can realistically prevent. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, that's a better way of looking at things, but that's not how my sense of fear and dread work. You know, yeah. I'm worried that as I approach 60 and then 70, I'll deteriorate and that, that's going to happen.
you know, that mm. my knees will hurt more. And I'm like, yeah, I can do stuff to reduce the harm, but I'm very worried that I won't be as fit 10 years from now, assuming society continues like it is. And Oh, good point. I mean, um, well, then you need AI to create the life extension stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm it's hoping your only that's shot. I mean, well, cryonics, that's my backup. You, you know, we are, I don't know if you know that much about like our philosophy and stuff like that, but we are very anti-life extensionism. Um, we think death I is a that. fantastic thing. Um, oh, yeah, no, I'm the opposite. I think death is horrendous and we should rage against the dying of the light as possibly possible. <laughs> Well, I mean, then you don't get intergenerational improvement. And 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 we see that as being the purpose of humanity is this cycle of intergenerational improvement. Um, but yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I can understand why as an individual, like I don't look forward to pain, but I try to not care about pain because I think that, that, that when I do and when I fear pain, I'm acting like an animal and not like a human. I, that's a great thing if you could pull it off internally. I don't think I could pull that one off internally other than just put it out, you know, Put it out of my well, mind to think about something else. Until the pain comes, yeah. Well, it's been great chatting with you. Um, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we talked about a broad range of topics here. Very different from our last conversation. We'll see if we can get uh, yeah. this this spiciness. If anybody wants to hear me prattle on more, you can always check out Basecamp. Um, and uh, gosh, I, I want to talk with you about this same topic on Heart Channel, I, I guess, because it's it's such a good topic. Yeah. I might just do a separate lecture on we'll it. Do I don't know. Yeah. I love this conversation. This is my um, obsession of what AI is going to do. So I'm always happy to talk about it. And... Yeah. Well, this is fantastic. And have a spectacular day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Oh, check out Basecamp, by the way, if you like this and, and the books. Uh, Basecamp, that's on... Um... YouTube it's on what? YouTube you... and it's on Substack and it's on all podcasting platforms that are like the mainstream okay, one. So type in Basecamp and you will find it. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, well, great. goodbye. Bye.